morning. As is evident from the reading, let's continue our study in the book of Malachi. We started it last time, last month, and so let's continue it today. Can you all hear me at the back? The story is an old one, but the good thing about old stories is that there is somebody in every audience who hasn't heard it. Well, that's not a joke. <laughs> so there could be some people in this audience who haven't heard it, but uh, given the fact that I've been preaching here for the last eight years, most of you would have heard it. So let me just refresh your memory on the story. The story is told of a man who was looking for a job, and he found an advertisement that said, wanted man to work. And so he goes to the place where the address is, and he finds out that all they're looking for is that there was a, they needed a man to impersonate a monkey in a zoo, because they were running short of monkeys, and it's vacation time, and a lot of kids were going to be coming to the zoo for a visit, and uh, they needed somebody to impersonate a monkey. And all he had to do was go early in the morning, get into the outfit of a monkey, and... Uh, just start sliding from one branch to another, look rather adept at it, and eat the bananas and the peanuts that were fed to him once in a while. Now, since money was tight, he took up the job, and all of a sudden he began to do it, and all the kids thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, he could do this about for eight to ten hours, and then he was thoroughly exhausted. And the bananas were getting the better of him as well. And as he started to swing from one branch to another, he slipped and he fell into the lion's cage next door. And then he began to scream, help, help. At that point, the lion leaned over and said, if you don't shut up, we'll both lose our jobs. Now, thankfully, this is a farcical and a humorous story. But the fact of the matter is, each of us as believers leads some kind of a similar game or the other, a game of pretense, especially in the aspect of worship. And the fact of the matter is, as we go on in life, we realize that at some point we cannot continue this game of pretense and we need help and we somehow try to call out for help. And the moment you call out for help to somebody, you realize to the utter horror and shock of your life, more often than not, that the person that you're shouting to for help is also playing a similar game of pretense as well. Back in England, in the Esther years, there was a rule that if you had to pass out of high school, you had to pass a scripture test. And so the students were being given scripture tests, and there was a group of students there, and the teacher was asking questions of each one of them. And then this question came up, that what was the most prevailing religion in a particular nation? So one teacher asked this question, what was the prevailing religion in India? <clears throat> and so one of the guys shot up his hand and he said, well, it's Hinduism. And then there were numerous countries that were mentioned and all, all the right answers were given by the students. And all of a sudden, here comes this teacher and he, he asks a boy who was sitting in a corner, he says, so what is the most prevailing religion in England? 
And the boy shot up his hand and he said, it is hypocrisy. That's right. It is the most prevailing religion, not just in England, but it's the most prevailing religion in the world or in the church. In fact, in our church as well, in our own lives as well. And the Bible provides several examples where God detested worship that was hypocritical and was just for public display as well. Now, Israel went on to display and act as though they were worshiping and God detested that. Jesus, in fact, during his earthly life, looked at the Pharisees and he condemned their false worship as well. But the fact of the matter is, false worship or this kind of a worthless worship is not just restricted or limited to ancient Israel. You can see that in the modern day church as well. You can see that in our church. You can see that in our own lives as well. God is not impressed by our outward display of worship. God looks through the entire ceremony and then he looks at each one of our hearts to test our hearts to see what is really in our hearts. And if we don't have a right connection with God, a right relationship with God, we haven't worshipped the Lord in spirit and in truth, then everything that we've done in the last one hour is worthless and is gone in vain. Now, you could fool somebody into thinking, into believing that you've got it all together spiritually. Or even, the fact of the matter is, you could even fool yourself into believing that you're all up there, or I am up there as well. But you and I cannot fool God. We can never fool God. And worship is a weighty matter to God. He doesn't trivialize it. He cannot take it lightly. So the right thing for us to do this morning, realizing that this is a dire thing, there is a need for us to analyze. The right thing for us to do this morning, even as I speak, or you sit here and listen, is for us to pause and think about these questions about our own lives. Do I really fear God? Do I really fear God? Or what are the consequences if I continue to offer to God this worthless worship? What are the consequences if I continue to offer God worthless worship? Now the prophet Malachi answers all these questions about valueless worship. People in Israel in that time were falling short of pure worship, at least pure worship on a sustained level. And the prophets came on the scene in Israel and they corrected them, they tried to rebuke them, they tried to reprove them as well. And there was one point in Israel where it was called the pre-exilic period, where their complete worship was corrupted with pagan ideas and idolatry as well. But now Malachi is addressing in the post-exilic period Idolatry had been knocked out of them in the Babylonian captivity. So in the post-exilic period, the problem was not so much with idols or paganism. The problem was with self-centeredness and indifference to God in worship. And that's exactly what Malachi was trying to address here. He deals with their making a mockery out of worship by bringing inferior offerings and sacrifices to God. And he is saying to the Israelites that God is not pleased with that kind of worship. And if you continue this kind of a worship that is worthless, that is insignificant, there are consequences, is what Malachi is saying here. So today's passage will reveal to us three consequences of worthless worship. 
three consequences of worthless worship. And if I can have my outline here, you can follow along as well as I speak. So firstly, in verses 6 through to 8, you'll see the Lord's name is despised when you offer worthless worship. The Lord's name is despised when you offer worthless worship. When you come into the presence of God with empty worship, you actually treat with contempt the very person of God himself. You actually treat with contempt the very person of God himself. That's exactly what Malachi told the Israelites. The reason why he told the Israelites that is because the priests dishonored and defiled the Lord by offering vain sacrifices. Now, how did they do that? They did that in two different ways. Firstly, the priests insulted the Lord and never owned up to it. The priests insulted the Lord and never owned up to it. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor, says the Lord? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Now Malachi begins this passage with a couple of affirmations. He says, a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. A son honors his father and a servant his master. And then by these two affirmations, he is leading into a rebuke to the people of Israel. Now, the moment he said that, all the Israelites affirmed it. A son honors his father, yes. A servant honors his master, yes. And they ought to because the law said the same thing. And it's not just that the law said the same thing, that a son ought to honor his father and a servant ought to honor his master, but it is the natural order of things. That's how things work. Now, of course, each culture has its own advantages and disadvantages, and I find that the Eastern cultures respect even verbally their parents very much. And especially in North Indian languages, there's a lot of respect that comes out. I have never in Telugu or in Malayalam ever heard a respectful word for parents except, you know, the general words that we use like Nana in Telugu or uh, Appa in, in, in Malayalam. But I had a roommate when I was doing my engineering who's from Bihar. And this guy, whenever the phone would ring and he'd pick up, the moment the phone rings, he'd pick up and he'd say, Pranam Pitaji. It's almost like saying, Daddy, Sir. He would never call or address his dad without the word G at the end of it. So that's the natural order of things. A son honors his father and a servant his master. And then having said that, he gets into two questions. And the Lord is asking two questions here. And he says this, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says Yahweh of armies to you, O priests who despise my name. Now the word honor here means to give God the weight of authority. To give to a father the weight of authority. To give to a master the weight of authority. So a son gives to his father a weight of authority. Uh, a servant gives his master the weight of authority. And what God is saying here is this, that you have never bothered to give any weight of authority to me. I am the father, where is my honor, says the Lord. I am the master, where is my fear, says the Lord. Now the accusation is very, very clear here. The accusation is that the Israelites and the priests in Israel were not honoring God. They were not fearing God at all. 
Now, that is a very, very strong accusation. They did not consider him as their father. They did not consider him as their master as well. He has still not stated what the problem is, but to summarize all of it, it simply boils down to this, that they stopped honoring God, they stopped treating him as their father, they stopped fearing God, they stopped treating him as his master as well. And yet, they were worshippers and priests in the temple. It is possible to be attendants in a worship service and to sing all the hymns by heart and to go through the motions of worship and yet despise the name of the Lord. It is very much possible. And the prophet makes this point very, very clear that they were despising the name of the Lord. And the message here is addressed directly to the priests. But the fact of the matter is, the priests were the people who were to teach the nation to fear the Lord, who were to teach the nation to honor the Lord. And since the priests failed in this matter, the whole nation failed as well, and the whole nation was guilty of it as well. And that's exactly what the Lord God is saying, that where is my honor and where is the fear that is due to me? And the word here used is the word despise. You have despised my name. You know what the word despise means? The word despise in Hebrew means to treat something with contempt, to treat something as ordinary, to treat something as something that is unholy. And God is saying that you have despised my name. You have treated me as somebody who is ordinary. You have treated me as somebody commonplace. You have treated me as somebody with contempt. You have been a despiser. Of my name. Now, the name in the Old Testament, name of Yahweh, brings with it the person and the work of Yahweh. And so to despise the name of Yahweh to means to despise the person and the work of Yahweh himself. Now, the priests thought they were doing everything right. They were pronouncing the right blessings. They were going through the right motions. They were sacrificing lambs. And then that's why they responded by saying, How have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? Even if we did mis- make a mistake here and there, that doesn't mean we despised your name. That's exactly what they were saying. But this is a very serious charge. And Yahweh is saying, otherwise saying, you have despised my name. You do not fear me and you do not honor me as well. And the seriousness of this charge is signaled by the fact that the Lord uses his name as a Lord of hosts or literally Yahweh of armies. Yahweh of armies, which means it is a judgment title that brings together all of the armies of the entire universe that are at his command. And he's saying, and he's saying I can judge people because all the armies of the entire universe are at my command. And Malachi had the retention saying that you are dishonoring God. And that's why he's launching into the second aspect of it. Secondly, he says, the priests denigrated the Lord by offering polluted sacrifices. The priests denigrated the Lord by offering polluted sacrifices. How did they denigrate the Lord? They did that in two ways again. Firstly, the priests offered polluted food. The priests offered defiled food. Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. The Lord said through the prophet that they were offering defiled or polluted food on the high altar or the table. Now the altar of course was a place of sacrifice and food had to be placed there or sacrifice had to be placed there. But what they were doing 
what they were doing was that they were putting polluted or defiled food on the table. The food was defiled. It was polluted. Now, I find it very, very strange and interesting that the sacrifice here is termed food. The sacrifice here is termed food, and I think for two different reasons. One is a symbolic reason, and the other one is a very practical reason. The symbolic reason is that the sacrifice, when it is placed on the altar, is burnt away, and it is as though God himself is consuming it. And then there's a practical reason that during the communal meals, the priests and the people had to partake of it as well. And so it was both symbolic and it was practical. But what these people were doing is that they were bringing polluted food, defiled food, and they placed it on the altar. That's the first way in which they were defiling the altar. Secondly, the priests sacrificed disqualified animals. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Now the people knew very well that they had to bring animals for sacrifices because that's what the law demanded. Every family group had to, whenever they came to the sanctuary, they had to bring three animals. One animal for sin offering, the second animal for burnt offering, the third animal for peace offering. Three animals for every family group every time they came to the sanctuary. But three animals could get very expensive, of course, won't they? It's like asking, get your three cars and burn them in front of the church. Lambs were expensive. So what they thought is, they thought in a very practical way, let's get the lame, the cursed, the insignificant the, the speckled lambs, the deceased lambs, and put them on the altar and then burn them to God. After all, he is going to consume them. After all, it's going to be burnt away anyway. That is the kind of thinking that the Israelites had in fulfilling this sacrifice. And they just thought of it as a ritual and just to get rid of the crummy livestock that was sitting in the pen as well. And the Lord said to them, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil as well? Now, this is a very, very serious charge. The reason that, is, that it is a serious charge is because of two things. Firstly, sacrifice was a gift to God. Sacrifice was supposed to be a gift to God. The value of the gift always determines the value the giver places on the person he is giving the gift to. The value of the gift always defines the value the person who is giving the gift places on the one who he is giving it to. For example, my wife's birthday is in August, and uh, if I plan to give her a wonderful gift on her birthday, and her birthday comes and all she gets is a new mop, well, that's a very practical gift, But the fact of the matter is, if she gets a mop, she will begin to recognize and understand the value that she has, that I have about her on my mind. So mop, although it's a very practical gift, is not the wise thing to do because it doesn't determine the value that that I hold about her in my mind. Now, so... That's exactly the same thing that happens when I go and buy somebody a gift as well. For example, if I want to gift Charlie on his birthday a shirt, 
Now, I go and bring out of my basement the oldest shirt possible, which is torn and just ripped apart, and then I iron it very well. I go to Charlie on his birthday, and I say, Charlie, I love you so much, but here is a 10-year-old shirt. I've not been using it for the last five years. It's ripped out, and, but I want to give it to you in love. That doesn't make sense at all, but that's exactly what these Israelites were doing. They were giving to God lame animals, blind animals, crippled animals, and animals that could not be sold for any advantage or profit, and animals that weren't of any other use at all. And so they despised the name of the Lord. And secondly, and theologically here, animal sacrifices were meant for atonement. Animal sacrifices were meant for atonement, signifying that the perfect animal was dying in the place of the sinner who was giving that animal. And God provided that provision for Israel to make sure that by the shedding of the blood, this family's sins would be forgiven somehow. And the principle came to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ when Christ died for us on the cross. And he was blemishless. Peter talks about it. There was no sin in his mouth. There was no guile in him at all. If Christ had any sin in him at all, then his death would have been no different from any of our deaths. But Christ was that pure lamb, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And so these animals signified Christ, the perfect one who would come. And so theologically they were wrong as well in bringing lame animals, blind animals, and deceased animals to the altar. And to bring these defiled things was a very serious thing. And they knew it. They knew it very well. But they challenged this as well. Now, notice this, how they're challenging it. And notice, in anticipating their response, Malachi is changing the object. They are not defiling the temple. They are not just defiling the altar. They said, how have we defiled you, the Lord himself? In defiling the altar without realizing, we begin to define, defy the Lord himself. We begin to defile the Lord himself. And that's exactly the same word used here again. They have despised me. They have despised my name. They have despised me completely. And now Malachi comes and challenges them with a final challenge. He says, offer them to your governor and see what he would do. Offer them to your governor and see if he would accept them from your hand and if you would find any favor from him when you give such a gift to him. Now, try going to your payroll guy tomorrow and try saying to him, I don't want to pay money as taxes, but I have my old tires of my bike that are worn out. My car's tires are sitting in my backyard. Can I pay them as the taxes for this year? What would your payroll guy say? The government puts their hand on your paycheck and takes the share right off the top. It is first the government. The government doesn't accept anything less than what they deserve. And that's exactly what Malachi is saying. Go offer these to your governor and see if you would find any favor with him. If government is so important... Any day, the Lord is much more important than the government because it is the Lord who has instituted the government. And to bring these inferior sacrifices to God and ask God for favor is to make a mockery of worship. It is to make a mockery of worship. And that's why the Lord is condemning these priests. And that's what these priests were doing. They dishonored and defiled the Lord by vain sacrifices. They dishonored and defiled the Lord by vain sacrifices. 
Let me ask you this question this morning as I ask myself this question as an application. Do you give your best to the Lord in worship? I think every one of us, me standing up here and all of you sitting here in CBF, have to ponder this question very, very seriously. Do you and I give our best to God in worship? When the Lord confronted Israelites with the same question, you know what they said? They thought they didn't do anything wrong because they were doing all the right things. They said, how have we defiled you? How have we defiled the altar? Just because they were doing all the right things, they were passing the right blessings, they were offering the sacrifices, they thought there was nothing wrong in what they were doing at all. Now the problem was that whatever they were doing was right, but it was not God-focused at all. It was not God-focused at all. They were not sacrificing to please God. They were not offering sacrifices to magnify God. They were just going through the motions of worship, but their hearts were not seeking to magnify and glorify God at all. It is really easy to stand up here and lead worship. It is really easy to memorize hymns and sing as well. And let me also tell you, it's very easy to stand up here and preach as well. And in doing all of this, our hearts could be completely away from the Lord. And we could just be going through the motions week after week. And one day the Lord would catch us and say, you have defiled my name. You have dishonored me. You have dishonored me. If I stand up here, and if I dodge some hard truth as a preacher so as not to offend somebody in the church, I am doing dishonor to the word of God. All I have to do here as a preacher is that I need to expound the word just to glorify him, just to bring honor to him, as tough as the word may be, as offensive sometimes as the word may be to the church and to me who is preaching here. Because all I need to do in the ministry that I'm called to do is to honor God and to magnify God. Any other focus to please people, not to offend people, to have a good name for myself, all of that, any other focus is dishonoring to God and it is despising the name of the Lord. There is nothing called shoddy holy, but if there is anything called shoddy holy, it is still shoddy. May I remind you this morning that the standard for worship from the beginning is that the first and the best belong to God. The first and the best belong to God. The first from the pen, the first from the field, the first fruit from the trees, everything, all of that belonged to God in the times of the Bible. In the modern times, the best of our times, the best of our knowledge, the best of our energies, the best of our studies, everything belongs to God. And we must make sure that we give him the first place and we give him the best as well. To give him anything less than our best is to despise him, dishonor him, and yet call out to him and say, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? So in verses 6 through 8, we saw that the Lord's name is despised when you offer worthless worship. The Lord's name is despised when you offer worthless worship. Then there's a second thing that Malachi is saying about the consequences of worthless worship. And that is in verses 9 through 11. They say that the Lord takes no pleasure in worthless worship, 
and he rejects it. The Lord takes no pleasure in worthless worship and he rejects it. If we do not worship the Lord with love and devotion, but only out of compulsion to follow a ritual, our gift will be worthless and it will be discarded and dejected. That's exactly what happened with Israel. And that's what we see here. The Lord rejected Israel's worship and he was going to the nations. The Lord rejected and rejected Israel's worship and he was going to go to the other nations of the world. And in trying to explain that, Malachi says three things and listen to me carefully, please. Firstly, the Lord did not show favor to the priests. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Malachi is using irony here. Now, irony is saying something that is exactly the opposite of what you want to mean. And he is using irony here and he's saying, and now go and entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. Now, you've been polluting the name of the Lord. You've been despising his name. You've been offering all these wrong sacrifices. You've been insulting him with the sacrifices that are of substandard ones that you're bringing to him. And now you want to entreat God to be favorable to you? It is just impossible, is what Malachi is saying. There is so much of irony here. And then he says, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord. It is foolish to pray to bestow favor on the priests when they were despising the name of the Lord in so many ways. Your prayers and my prayers will not be heard if we dishonor God. Your prayers and my prayers will not be heard if we dishonor God and they will not be accepted. Secondly, the Lord desired to put an end to meaningless worship. Verse 10, the Lord desired to put an end to meaningless worship. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now, God is speaking through Malachi here. And God thinks it is better to shut the doors and keep the people outside and keep the worshippers outside rather than to let them in and have them light worthless lights and worthless fires and worthless offerings. A gratuitous worship, a gratuitous worship is pointless and a waste of time. A gratuitous worship is pointless and waste of time as well. Thirdly, the Gentile nations would worship and magnify the Lord. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What would be the outcome of shutting the temple doors and putting the worshippers outside? The outcome is the Lord turning to the Gentiles. The Lord is turning to the Gentiles. And this is one of the clearest and the earliest prophecies of Gentiles having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the Lord is saying. There's a figure of speech called merism in, in the Hebrew language, which means two opposites are put together to talk about the totality of it. So God is saying from the rising of the sun to its setting, which is all day. From the rising of the sun, which is in the east, to the setting of the sun, which is in the west, which means everywhere, all day, everywhere, in all nations, incense will be given to me. And my name will be glorified. 
among the nations is what the Lord is saying. So incense symbolizes prayer and sacrifice symbolizes obedience in faith. So what the Lord is saying is this. There are Gentile nations that are rising up that will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice and they will light incense to my name and they will pray and they will pray in obedience of faith as well. But the Lord rejected Israel's worship and was going to turn to the nations. Do you and I worship the Lord with love and devotion? Do you worship the Lord with love and devotion? What we, when we don't have love and devotion to God in our worship, we end up giving to God our leftovers. The people of Malachi's day had no use of the blind ones, the lame ones, the sick ones, the speckled ones, and all these kinds of things. And that's why they brought them to the altar of God. And God took it very seriously. And he said, you're despising my name. I'd rather have the temple door shut than to have worshippers come and light wrong fires on my altar. Giving to God what you don't really need is not giving to God at all. If you're giving something to God that you have no longer use of, then you're not giving anything to God. If I'm taking the best of my time and spending it on my career or on worldly things, and when there's nothing left on my calendar and I come and give that time to God, I don't think I'm giving any favor to God or doing any favor to God or giving any time to God at all. If you come to church on Sunday mornings or if you attend weekly Bible studies or if you attend any meetings of the church only because these meetings do not clash with any other event on your calendar, then you don't have God as your priority. You don't have God as your priority. I don't have God as my priority if I do that. Our Lord's first command that he gave us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you, does not apply only to pastors, does not apply only to full-timers, it does not apply only to the elders and deacons, it applies to each and every follower of Jesus Christ. And I wrestle with this constantly. Let me speak my heart out. I wrestle with this constantly. The constant question on my mind, as I was preparing this sermon, I was sitting alone in a room, and there were tears running down my face because the Lord spoke to me and convicted me of several things. And I'm not speaking here in a condescending way to the church. I'm speaking very humbly with a broken heart. And listen to me carefully, please, and understand what the Lord is speaking to us this morning as a church. Am I valuing the things of God more than the things of the world? Am I giving the best of my time, the best of my energies, the best of my knowledge, the best of my education, the best of my career, the best of my money, the best of my gadgets, all to the Lord? Am I seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? These are the things that we have to struggle with. These are the things that I struggle with always on my mind. I have these questions always lingering on my mind. And I think every follower of Christ ought to have these questions before they do anything. 
A high school girl wrote this letter, and it really touched me and made me think a lot. Listen to this carefully, please. She wrote this to a friend. I attended your church yesterday. Although you had invited me, you were not there. I looked for you, hoping to sit with you. I sat alone. A stranger, I wanted to sit at the back of the church, but those rows were all packed with regular attenders. An usher took me to the front. I felt as though I was on a parade. During the singing of the hymns, I was surprised to know that some of the church people weren't singing. Between the sighs and the yawns, they, were, they just stared into space. Three of the kids that I respected on the campus were whispering to one another throughout the whole service. Another girl was giggling. I really didn't expect this in your church. The pastor's sermon was very interesting, although some of the choir members didn't seem to think so. They looked bored and restless. One from the choir kept smiling at somebody in the congregation throughout the sermon. There were several people who left and then came back during the sermon. I thought, how rude. I could hear the constant shuffling of feet and doors opening and closing. The pastor spoke about the reality of faith. The message got to me and I made up my mind to speak to somebody after the service. But utter chaos reigned after the benediction. I said good morning to one couple, but the response was less than cordial because they had to rush off. I looked for some teens with whom I could discuss the sermon. And they were all huddled up in a corner talking about the newest music group. My parents don't go to church. I came alone yesterday hoping to find a place to truly worship and feel some love. I'm sorry I didn't find it in your church. I won't be back again. The more I've thought about this letter, and I read this again and again, before I put it as an illustration here, the more I thought about this letter, the more I was convinced that worship, when it's practiced with integrity by a believing community like ours, potentially could be the most powerful evangel in a culture like ours. It could be the most powerful evangel in a culture like ours. That's why John Piper in his brilliant book called Let the Nations Be Glad says this, and I quote, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Did you hear that? Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. What does he mean by that? We go on a mission to a particular place because worship of Jesus Christ doesn't exist there. We go there to evangelize and make them worship the Lord. So missions is not the ultimate thing. Worship is. And missions exist because worship doesn't. And then he continues. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. But worship abides forever. This is John Piper for you. And I urge you, CBF, as I urge myself, to get back to worshiping the Lord with love and devotion. To get back to worshiping the Lord with love and devotion. So two consequences so far of worthless worship. Firstly, the Lord's name is despised despised when you offer worthless worship. And secondly, the Lord takes no pleasure in worthless worship and he rejects it. Then there's a third thing that Malachi is saying, and these are the words of the Lord himself in verses 12 through 14. They say that the Lord chastises you when you worship, when your worship involves improper attitude and wrong actions. The Lord chastises you 
when your worship involves improper attitudes and wrong actions. When your worship and my worship is callous and cold, the Lord takes it seriously. And the Lord chastens us for being so cold and callous in our worship. And that's exactly what he did to Israel. The Lord cursed Israel for the wicked attitude and actions. How was the attitude and what were the wrong actions they had? Three things. Firstly, the priest declared that the Lord's temple or the Lord's table is defiled. Verse 12. But you profane it. You say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. Now Malachi had just talked about the nations of the world worshipping the Lord in the right way. And now he's, he's turning to Israel, looking at Malachi's audience, and he's explaining their sin once again. He's saying, you are profaning it. You are profaning it. The word profane is the opposite of, unho- is the opposite of holy in the Hebrew language. It means unholy. It means something that is common, something that is ordinary. And they're saying... That, and, and, and Malachi was saying that they were treating God as something who is ordinary, something who is profane, something who is unholy. Do you really think the priests said all these things? Do you really think that the priests said all these things? I don't think the priest went about saying all these things, but the way they worshipped, it was as though they profaned the name of the Lord. And they found the table of the Lord contemptible. Secondly, the priests found the worship to be a burden. Verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Now Malachi says they're not even hiding their true feelings. We try to give them benefit of the doubt, saying they may not have vocally said it, but that's exactly what they were doing here. They were not even willing to hide their true feelings. They said, what a drudgery it is. What a boring thing worship is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of armies. You sniff at it, says the Lord of armies. To snort at something is to look down upon something. is to take no delight in something. There was no delight in worship. There was no joy in serving the Lord for them. All they wanted to do was go through the motions, pronounce the blessing, do, put something on the altar, sacrifice it, take the paycheck, and go home. That's exactly what they wanted to do. Get the ritual over with. The ritual was of no significance to them anymore. What an insult is what Malachi says. What a real insult to the Lord himself. Thirdly, the Lord cursed those who did not give him their best. Verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who was a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The Hebrew word curse basically means removed from blessing or the blessing taken away. What the Lord is saying here is this, that if you have the best in your pen, if you have the best things and you offer substandard things to the Lord as a sacrifice, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away the blessing as well, even your life sometimes. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 5 when the Lord took away the life of Ananias and Sapphira who presented something to the Lord as their best. 
And that's exactly what God is saying in the book of Revelation as well. In chapters 2 and 3, I will put out your candlestick. I will put out your candlestick. He will remove the candlestick. And looking at all these things, when the curse lands and when the people who are falsely worshipping the Lord are taken away and cursed, even the nations of the world who see what is happening in Israel will know that it is only the Lord who can do it. He's a great king. He has the power to do it. And all of these nations looking at what's happening to Israel will fear the Lord. They will all fear the Lord. So the Lord cursed Israel for their wicked attitudes and actions. Do you think worship has become a drudgery to you? Is worship a boring thing? The prophet's words should challenge all of us to examine our own hearts. Each one of us sitting here. The priests were tired of the routine. They would offer one animal, pronounce blessings, take their money, and they would go home. That is the routine that they were following. They were bored with worship and they had lost sight of the greatness and the majesty of God. You always get bored with worship when you don't have that real connection with God and you lose sight of the grandeur and the greatness and the majesty of God. Now, very recently, I I got an email from one of the brothers uh, in our church. I don't want to mention the name and the details. And he said, uh, you know, Revant, I've been asked to do worship uh, leading and so I want you to go through my notes and just uh, see uh, and, and help me out with this and so the pa- portion that he selected was Romans 12 1 and 2 and I read the passage several times, I've taken Bible studies on that, I've preached, that, preached on that several times and so I, I just thought to myself well it's, it's a familiar passage you know, I just write some notes because I was busy and then uh, immediately I had a thought in, 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 my, in my heart where the Spirit of God, I think, we clearly told me, now, he trusts you and he respects you and that's why he sent it to you. Take it seriously. Go through the passage again and get back to him. So I sat down with my Bible open and uh, I have the email in front of me and I looked at the passage and the passage, obviously, we all know about it. Paul explains the Christian doctrine, his Magna Carta in the book of Romans in chapters 1 through 11. And then all of a sudden in chapter 12, he turns to the practical aspect of it. He says, therefore, my brothers, in light of all that I've said, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that is your reasonable aspect of worship. That's your reasonable aspect of worship. That's what Paul says. And so I thought to myself that, well, this is talking about the general Christian life. It is talking about all of Christian life. But this guy has taken that for worship on a Sunday morning. Is that even appropriate? Is the context even appropriate? And then I got this thought immediately that the context is absolutely appropriate for a Sunday morning because Sunday morning worship is never isolated from the rest of the Christian life. If all of Christian life is worship and it's a reasonable sacrifice that we offer, then the Sunday morning worship becomes a culmination for the week where we corporately come and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so he was absolutely right in selecting the passage. Now the reason I'm saying is this. When you and I lose sight of the grandeur and the majesty and the holiness of God, worship 
naturally becomes a boring thing to you and to me. If you are finding worship boring, you have to go back and I request you to think about how grand our God is, how majestic our God is, how holy our God is. And the fact of the matter is, the Lord of hosts is a phrase that is used seven times in these particular verses. And that means something. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of all galaxies as well. C.S. Lewis, um, this is for the kids, C.S. Lewis, in his much-celebrated book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he tells of the adventures of four children. Now, let me refresh your memory. Who are the four children? (laughs) That'll wake you up as well. Susan? Edmund? Lucy? Josiah, who's the fourth one? (laughs) It's Peter, okay. (laughs) So, so four, four people go to this magical Narnia land, right? And they meet two fellows, Mrs. and Mr. Beaver. And they begin to explain about this great king called Aslan. Look at this fascinating uh, lines that C.S. Lewis, in his inimitable way, has written. Lucy asks this question, is he a man? Talking about the lion. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's a king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who's the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who appears before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either brave or very silly. They're either brave or very silly. And Lucy says, then he isn't safe, is he? Mr. Beaver said, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king, I tell you. Our God is a king as well. And if you and I come carelessly to him without our knees knocking, you and I have got to be silly about it. You and I have got to be really silly about it. Here is the point that Malachi is trying to make. And here is the point that I want to make as well. Whenever in the Bible anybody got a glimpse of the glory of God, they were not looking at their watches to find out how much longer is left in the service. They were in awe of the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God. And that is something that you and I need to have. And I promise you, I promise you, not every sermon uh, brings you closer to God like that. I promise you, not every quiet time is so much of a glory. I promise you, not every Sunday morning is like that. But if you're consistently finding yourself bored in worship, then there's something really wrong. You'll have to go back and find out about who this real God is and what what his greatness is, and remember that he is a king as well. I also want to remind you that it's easy to go through through all sorts of activities and programs in the church and yet lose sight of who God really is. He's looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? This morning's sermon basically says this, that the Lord deals with you severely when you continue to offer him worthless worship. The Lord deals with you severely 
when you continue to offer him worthless worship. You take the worship of God lightly. He will chasten you if you don't repent soon. Three things. The Lord's name is despised when you offer worthless worship. The Lord takes no pleasure in worthless worship and he rejects it. Thirdly, the Lord chastises you when you worship, when you worship involves improper attitude and wrong actions. If the Lord has spoken to you this morning through this sermon, I, I encourage you to analyze your own life in light of what you've just heard. If you've lost sight of the grandeur and the greatness of God, if you're finding worship boring, may I ask you to confess your sin this morning and come back to God and have the right view and sight and the knowledge of God. There is no sin that our Lord Jesus Christ cannot forgive. And let me remind you what the word says. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll say this from my personal experience. The only way to prioritize God in everything is to always be saturated in the word of God because it confronts you every single waking moment of your life. The moment you try to drift away, it doesn't let you stay calm. It unsettles you and it tries to bring you back. Be saturated in the word of God. And it always reminds you that your aim is to glorify him and to him alone. Thank you for your time and thank you for your patience as well. Two personal illustrations and I'll be through. One of the brothers in CBF, uh, I don't want to mention his name. He particularly asked me not to mention his name, but uh, I might betray who he is uh, in, in terms of the explanation that I give, but I don't think there'll be any sort of a real betrayal in that. Uh, but but just, uh, just bear with me and listen to this story, but this, this really sums it all up. And uh, this brother called me, I think, two months ago, and he said this. He said, Ravant, I've got a job offer, and... Uh, that is paying me a good lot of money. It's from a reputed company. And uh, so I thought I'd discuss this with you. But I also want to tell you this. If I take up this offer, I'll have to drive for two more hours every day. I think it's two more hours he mentioned. Uh, and I won't have time for spiritual things. I won't have time for church. I won't have time for my family. I won't have time for the things of the Lord. Now, I, I love and respect this brother. We've known him. We've known each other for years. And so... Uh, he's not somebody that I need to go and give some advice to. And so I just said, you know, I, I know you'll do the right thing because I know you love the Lord. And uh, when we got on the phone, when I got on the phone with him, I told my wife, Ange, I said, I've known this brother for years, and she's sitting right here. I said, I know he will not take up this job because I know his heart. And sure enough, the next week I met him in the church, and he told me, uh, Ravent, I've not taken it up because... You know, for, for the obvious reasons. And we were driving back, and I told my wife this in the car. And I was very happy about it. I told my wife this in the car. I said this. Here is a brother who knows the right priorities in his life. And here is a brother who knows that money can never be a replacement for time with your wife, time with God, and spiritual things. The famed Archbishop William Temple summarized worship this way. Worship is a submission of all of my nature to God. 
It's the quickening of conscience by his holiness, nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love, and submission of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we as redeemed people are capable. Quickening of conscience by his holiness, nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of the imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love, and submission of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we as human beings are capable. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this morning and thank you for your crystal clear word. Thank you for speaking to us, for speaking to each of our hearts, O Lord. And we confess this morning that if we have offered worthless worship, we ask for your forgiveness because we have a promise in your word that you would forgive us of all our sins if we confess because of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you. Help us to take a great conviction from this passage that from now on we will not offer any more worthless worship or worthless sacrifices but we'll always come to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name.